There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mini budget crashes the pound. Westminster Council to seize oligarchs' mansions. London architects John McCaslin and partners to redesign New York's biggest architectural blunder and plans brewing for Queen Elizabeth Mini Memorial Gardens. My name is Finn Harper, I'm an architecture critic, and I'm going to be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Matthew Lloyd Roberts, uh, architectural historian, editor of the wonderful About Buildings podcast. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me, Finn. Our first story. Uh, On Friday, the new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, outlined the government's mini-budget, which triggered a collapse in the UK economy as the pound fell to an all-time low against the dollar uh, immediately following his speech. And there's been various sort of shenanigans in the markets since that moment. Kwarteng had announced the biggest tax giveaway to high earners in 50 years, which will see the government borrowing money in order to fund tax breaks for the already wealthy. The story has been very widely covered in the national and international media. The Guardian this week published a look at what Kwarteng's tax cuts could mean for affordable housing provision, in particular around um, a fear that they might be ditched in some places as around a dozen newly announced investment zones are brought forward. So these zones are sort of special areas in the UK where there's a different set of economic regulations that apply. And they're meant to encourage more business investment by granting sort of tax relief and uh, relief from red tape and bureaucracy including by removing certain planning regulations, which would ordinarily elsewhere guide what can be built where and give the public a say in some of those big decisions. So a letter from the new government's levelling up department to local authorities read, quote, where planning applications remain necessary, they will be radically streamlined. Planning sites may be co-located with or separate to tax sites, depending on what makes the most sense for the local economy. Mm. So, while not yet confirmed, it is feared that Section 106 agreements, which are these things that require developers of new property to reinvest in the local area by providing uh, additional infrastructure projects or affordable housing, could be scaled back in these investment zones. So a kind of complex picture emerging very quickly as the new government takes office. Um, Matt, you know, Kwarteng's mini-budget has sent massive shockwaves through the UK economy. Uh, Almost as soon as he'd finished speaking, the pound had plummeted to this record low rate. 
Um, on Tuesday, mortgage lenders pulled nearly 300 deals over interest rate fears, and Kwarteng's decision to cut stamp duty has been slammed by some for further inflating of the housing crisis. Uh, today, even the, the International Monetary Fund was urging the British government to reverse course. Very unusual for them to do so. Um, what's the impact of all this going to be on households? What do you make of it? Well, it's a big mess, isn't it? Um, it is clearly the product of a hard ideological commitment to the most stringent form of neoliberalism that we can conceive of that has been brewing since the late 1970s in think tanks like the Institute of Economic Affairs. The difference is that when these sort of big, hardcore, privatizing, deregulating regimes were brought in in the early 1980s, there was a meaningful scale of state provision in things like housing, nationalized industries that could be sold off and stripped away. We're now at the end of 10 years of the harshest austerity that we've almost ever seen, and there's very little left to cut. There's very little left to give away. And so you end up in this position where Kwarteng is funding tax cuts for the rich through government borrowing at a time when borrowing costs are the highest that they've been, certainly in the last decade. The one complexity is, and I think it's very easy to tell a story of total break, but we've got to remember when it comes to things like avoiding the uh, restrictions of Section 106 agreements and building social housing, the Tory governments have been able to get developers around some of these commitments. So in some ways it's in keeping, but this sort of neoliberalism on steroids, this hardcore approach um, is new. And the radical free port policy and the sort of idea that you would have areas totally outside of the regulatory framework is a very scary uh, kind of proposal that is not going to solve the housing crisis um, and probably will do a huge amount of damage to um, green spaces in the country, not least because these kinds of deregulatory zones, they only work when backed up by meaningful state action. I think that's something that we often forget. Singapore gets invoked somewhere that has very low regulation on businesses and is able to operate very dynamically within the Southeast Asian economy. But you've got to remember, Singapore builds massive amounts of social housing to underwrite that dynamic economy. Similarly, something like the development of the Docklands and Canary Wharf across the river from where we are now often gets invoked as this great success story of deregulation. But you've got to remember that, that was underpinned by a huge program of compulsory purchase orders which were managed by the government and that is an anathema to Truss and Kwarteng despite the fact that if their free port ideas is going to work, are going to work um, it will be reliant on some kind of meaningful government economic infrastructure for those uh, those areas. Yeah it's fascinating that um, even the IMF the International Monetary Fund who are sort of like the global <laughs> um, the main kind of driver of neoliberalism at a sort of international level even they are like whoa 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 <laughs> yeah. this is a bit nuts yeah. slow down guys um, maybe rethink some of these um, tax cuts for the, to the for the super rich um, one possible um, positive from uh, this sort of wave of deregulations could be that, that there seems to be in the mini budget uh, plans to relax rules on wind farms by you know, lift, lifting this sort of effective ban on new onshore wind farms. 
could that be a step in the right direction? You know, what what do you think that move or, or, or what other moves could be made to uh, sort of ease the energy crisis that's currently gripping Britain? Yeah, I mean, there's clearly a problem with the planning policies around wind farm pr- provision, especially onshore wind farm pr- provision, because they're actually much more popular than you might think. Uh, Public polling has shown that a lot of people uh, would be very happy to have an increase in onshore wind. And at the moment, the planning system is stopping it from happening. The problem is that if you have a government that is allowing deregulation in order to make more wind farm provision, but is simultaneously introducing domestic fracking uh, on a large scale for the first time, and totally ideologically committed to draining every drop of fossil fuels out of the North Sea, any gains from an increase in wind capacity that come through that deregulation are totally wiped out by that broader commitment to a carbon-intensive economy. So I think, yeah, it would be great if the planning system allowed more wind farms to be built where they're popular anyway, but if that has to come at the cost of large-scale fracking and draining the North Sea dry of fossil fuels, I, I... I don't see it being a positive outcome. <laughs> I do love a wind farm. I so yeah, I'm I'm definitely in the what you're saying is sort of majority of people who who quite admire wind farms and wouldn't mind one nearby. They're just so beautiful. Anyway, um our next story is that some of London's most expensive property could be seized as Westminster Council looks to acquire oligarchs' homes for affordable housing. So according to reports picked up in Open Democracy and The Guardian and elsewhere, Westminster City Council has announced it is examining the use of compulsory purchase orders on homes acquired with, quote, dirty money as part of a push to combat the capital's reputation as a European centre for money laundering. So the crackdown on oligarchs using Belgravia, Knightsbridge and Mayfair to rinse their money could see the buildings turned into affordable housing as part of the council's bid to reduce a 4,000-strong waiting list for affordable housing in the borough. Since 2010, the number of Westminster properties registered to owners in Russia, for example, has gone up by a staggering 1,200%. And according to researchers at Transparency International UK, that's TIUK, Russians explicitly accused of corruption or of links to the Kremlin have bought property worth nearly £430 million in the borough since 2016. Rose Zussman, uh, who's a policymaker at TRUK, said, quote, It's no secret that kleptocrats and those with money to hide have invested vast sums into the Westminster property market over the years. It is promising to see the council seeking to help expose and recover these illicit assets. The council is now investigating properties owned overseas by comparing them against council tax data to determine whether the buildings are actually being used for their stated purpose. So, Matt, yeah. what is all this yeah. about? Um, this feels like a very big move for um, a very new council who just won control of the borough after 58 years uh, of being the opposition. Do you reckon it's just a headline-grabbing news story aimed to show, you know, to poke fun at the previous leadership? Uh, or is it a, a genuinely progressive step to create more affordable housing and to solve the problem of dirty money flowing into London? I think the local politics of this are really interesting and I'll get onto them in a second. But firstly, I just want to emphasize and put back on the record, right? When the Soviet Union fell, when the current oligarchic kleptocratic regime was being put in power in Russia, huge numbers of major elite prestigious firms in this city 
took the decision to make a Faustian pact. The, the accountants audited the accounts. The lawyers signed off the papers. The estate agents sold them the houses. You know, we totally facilitated the creation of that oligarchic um, kleptocracy in Russia. And that is the background, that like 30 years of history. And, and a lot of people have made a lot of money out of that. And I think that's a really important thing to remember when we're talking about this sort of specific problem. In terms of the local politics, no, clearly there aren't enough houses owned by Russian oligarchs to solve the housing crisis in London. But it's very good politics for a a Labour council, a new Labour council, especially after a long period of Tory rule, to come in and do this kind of thing. It makes clear that, you know, the previous local government were not fit for purpose, broadly speaking. And the whole problem is a, is a product of the fact that local government, central government, has been totally committed to making London property the most secure international asset class. Prices can only go up. No matter where the money comes from, you will have a way to buy property here and to secure your millions here, and it will be safe and protected forever. And no matter what the social costs of that are in the city. So I think any Labour government that wants, or any Labour local government that wants to take a firm stance on that is doing a good thing. But we have to tackle that bigger problem about the way that housing functions as an asset class in the international economy and in the national economy before we can think meaningfully about solving the housing crisis. I think a a much better example or or an example of a policy that another new local government, Labour government, is taking in the city that will have more of a meaningful long-term effect than this sort of showy bit of um, compulsory purchase order um, appropriation stuff is that Wandsworth Council another newly elected Labour council after a long period of conservative local government in that borough, are moving to reinstate lifelong tenancies for social housing, council housing tenants. And those kinds of reforms, combined with meaningful increase in the amount of social housing that local authorities are building, are the kinds of things that can start to push back the tide of vastly inflated property prices that has kind of overwhelmed the city over the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Wandsworth. I, I was following um, Iden Dekadem, friend of the show, um, who was tweeting about, I think, a constituent who was having to move because their landlord had raised their rent by over 100%, more than doubled it, um, which is, you know, we're talking about sort of inflation at maybe 9%, 12%, but over 100%. Um, on rent, which seemed extraordinary. Uh, and it really sort of highlights something that is quite confusing, or I find it quite confusing in, in, in London's sort of property sector. So we have this kind of chronic shortage of affordable housing, and we're seeing these incredibly high um, values uh, for private housing. So this week, a six-bedroom house in Hackney uh, in, went under offer for more than £10 million, which, you know, would have been kind of totally unthinkable sort of a couple of decades ago. Um, and yet, and yet, we started the show by talking about this absolute sort of um, trauma that's happening in the economy and the, the pound is crashing. We seem on the brink of a recession, um, stagnation, lack of productivity. What is going on that our housing market seems to be on this unstoppable, 
ascent, while at the same time every other aspect of the economy seems to be uh, on the precipice of a recession? Well, the first thing I will say is that I don't know if that will be as true in a year's time, potentially. If the response to this current fiscal event is that the Bank of England pushes the base rate up to 5 or 6% in the new year, that's going to mean the average mortgage holder, i.e. not most London mortgages, is going to be paying an extra £700, £800 a month in mortgage repayments. That is a cost that the vast majority of mortgage-holding households in this country can't stomach. So if that happens, you're going to have a situation like the early 1990s, where a huge number of people are in negative equity, huge number of people walk away from their houses, and you have something potentially of a crash in prices. But you've already alluded to the fact that the rental sector is totally broken. And I know so many friends who are desperately trying to find somewhere to live at the moment and having no luck with it at all. You can never underestimate the fundamental belief of the Conservative Party in maintaining that upward trajectory of house prices. You've seen it in this fiscal event with Kwasi Kwarteng's cut on stamp duty, which is basically trying to ward off the threat that a tighter monetary policy environment might drive down house prices through driving down demand for mortgages. Um, And if it's all right, I would like to offer a brief quote from Karl Marx's text, the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte III, which reads as follows. The Tories in England long imagined that they were enthusiastic about monarchy, the church, and the beauties of the old English constitution, until the day of danger wrung from them the confession that they are only enthusiastic about ground rent. Now, whether Quasi Quarteng and Liz Truss's ideological commitment to a kind of fiscal blitzkrieg against the British state is sufficient that they will let a housing market crash happen in the process might prove that quote wrong. But we will just have to wait and see. It's a, it's a week where it's very difficult to tell what is going to happen in the next two weeks, let alone the next year. But it's a bad business. Let's, let's move to a story where... Um... We can, <laughs> where the details seem at least a little bit clearer. Um, so according to the Architects newspaper and Building Design, a London-based architecture practice has this week been selected to redesign one of New York City's biggest architectural blunders. Uh, this is John McCaslin and Partners, um, which is the practice behind the renovation of uh, King's Cross train station. Uh, they've been selected to revamp New York's city's Penn Station, uh, along with FX Collaborative Architects and engineering firm WSP. Uh, so the project, which has uh, been estimated to cost about $7 billion, will see the overcrowded underground station transformed into a single-level structure centered around a grand hall with a 140-meter-long skylit atrium running between Madison Square Garden and Two Penn Plaza. So the original Pennsylvania station, which opened in 1910, featured a monumental Beaux-Arts-style structure designed by American architects McKim, Mead, and White. But following a slump in passenger numbers after World War II, the original building was demolished in 1963 to make way for Madison Square Garden, and the subterranean concourses were heavily renovated to become the modern Penn Station. The demolition was bitterly contested, and it's become something of a sort of cause celebre for opponents of demolition-led regeneration, particularly in the States, but kind of around the world as well. Um, Today, Penn Station is the U.S.'s busiest transport hub, serving 600,000 travelers every weekday before the pandemic. And that's 
projected to grow. Um, we should say that the overall master plan also includes the construction of high-rise residential towers that could create 1,800 apartments in the area, including 540 permanently affordable homes, apparently. So, Matt, what can you tell us about the original Penn Station um, and the one that exists today? Why is the modern station so unpopular with so many New Yorkers? I've only been to Penn Station once or twice in my life, but the current iteration is not a particularly pleasant place to be. It has these very low ceilings, sort of drop ceilings, that make the whole thing feel like you're in a kind of, well, a, a rat race, tunnel, huge crowds all around you and the ceiling bearing down on you all the time. That seems to be the main thing that McCaslin's proposal for the concourse spaces is trying to solve. It's trying to make it open it up, put this big glass atrium on top of it. I mean, it's all a kind of ultimately pale imitation of the original building, which is quite rightly um, much missed. But it's important to remember a little bit about the context in which that original building was built in the first decade of the 20th century, America was emerging as the predominant global power, a sort of new imperial force for the 20th century. It had just beaten the Spanish Empire in the you know, imperialist conflict over Cuba and various other places. And the Beaux-Arts designed by McKim, Mead and White lives up to that new national identity by drawing on the architecture of something like the Baths of Caracalla um, in Rome, these sort of great monuments of Roman imperial economic productivity when the Roman Empire controlled all of the Mediterranean world. Um, the original Penn Station, as it existed before the demolition, was this extremely generous, extremely opulent, extremely lavish statement of kind of a national imperial identity in a funny way. It's, it's, it's difficult to imagine or to kind of conceive of the scale of this building. Like it, the original Penn Station had an interior space about equal in cubic volume to the Vatican. Wow. <laughs> right? the <whole> Vatican. Like, <laughs> like, the, like the main basilica of the Vatican. Like this, this, is, this was on a truly imperial monumental scale, this building. And its replacement by Madison Square Gardens is kind of an interesting product of 20th century changes in public space, you know, because Madison Square Gardens creates this vast inside arena, but for the purposes of like Harry Styles concerts and basketball games and things. You know, McCaslan um, did King's Cross. Mm. A lot of people really like what they did there, stripping away some of the kind of gubbins at the front, adding on this kind of UFO to the side. Mm. Um, have you seen their new designs for Penn Station and, and what do you think of them and what do you think of King's Cross? It's funny in a way because the much closer... London parallel to Penn Station story, in some ways it also not in others, is Euston, right? Where the Victorian train station was demolished and replaced by um, a very good scheme by Seafoot, which is in turn being kind of gutted as we speak. The difference there is that in the case of Penn Station, the thing that replaced the early 20th century thing was not very good, whereas in the case of London... In Euston in particular, we have a kind of false memory of what Euston Station was like. It was nothing like the scale or the grandeur of Penn Station in the early 20th century. And the Seafoot placement for it is quite, is quite good. McCaslin's King's Cross scheme creates this big, airy, grand 
concourse inside, right? It does it in quite an interesting way where what was previously an external wall has been made into an interior space. I, I feel like it's very, it was very much in the pattern of something like Norman Foster's Central Court of the British Museum, where you take these kind of exterior spaces of Grand Victorian or um, early 19th century buildings and you transform them through a kind of high-tech space frame glass topping into these new vast interior concourse spaces. Mm. It's a very different ground condition, the current Penn Station, that McCaslin is responding to with this proposal, but it certainly is interested in that similar kind of glass-topped, high-ceilinged, grand kind of public spaces. And I'm going to be interested to see what it's like in person. As the period of national mourning draws to a close, plans to create a permanent memorial for the late Queen Elizabeth II have been unveiled. A flurry of tweets from the journalist, writer and human rights campaigner Stefan Simanowitz revealed plans nearly a decade in the making to create a Queen Elizabeth Memorial Garden in central London. The proposals, which were first shared with the Royal Household in 2015, apparently, as an idea to mark the Queen's 90th birthday, suggest opening up a sliver of the Buckingham Palace Gardens to create a new public space. The proposed mini-garden would run parallel to Grosvenor Place, a busy road running from Hyde Park Corner towards Victoria, and would retain the current perimeter wall permeated with a number of new arches. The draft proposals, which are yet to be formally approved by the palace, intend to leave the park in its wild state, containing ancient woodland, wildflowers and a butterfly meadow and other natural features. Uh, a playground would be built, benches installed and a prominent statue of the late queen erected. So, Matt, um, you know, this is one of the first serious proposals for a memorial to the late queen. I'm probably going to see many more. Um, what do you make of the designs as they've been unveiled this week? I found this one very strange. I mean, it's kind of a fun, slightly perverse idea that you take what is the very hard boundary of the Buckingham Palace estate that's currently pushed up against, as you say, was basically the A road in central London. And then you knock holes in that very solid brick wall so that people can pass through, but to a tiny strip. Like, it's, it's, it's what, it's only about 15, 20 metres deep, I reckon? A tiny little strip. All this talk about ancient woodland and meadows, you're, you're barely going to get enough width to get a set of swings in there. <laughs> I mean, that's an exaggeration, but it speaks, I think, to the problem with this kind of strip approach to creating green public space is that public space, green public space works when it's deep. You know, you need to have a good separation from roads, from thoroughfares, so that people can sit around and have picnics and things. Uh, and and you can get sort of the beneficial effects of being away from the kind of hustle and bustle of the main stretch of the city. It's also very strange because, you know, St. James's Park, Green Park and Hyde Park are all within a five-minute walk of here, and they are not quite at capacity yet. You know, these are some of the biggest green spaces in any the middle of any city in the world. I think a much better kind of monument or memorial to um, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II would be the provision of new green space, new meaningful green space in places where there currently isn't enough. It does seem a bit cheap, you know. <laughs> I, I'm, you know I'm not a royalist, I'm a Republican, but if I was a royalist and I was thinking of a way to sort of suitably um, honour the you know, longest reigning monarch of uh, our, our country... 
a sliver isn't quite the kind of word I'd reached for. I'd go for something a bit more epic. Maybe you do a, a new park in every town in the country, or, or maybe you take the entire of Buckingham Palace and you make it um, a museum or affordable housing. You, um, as part of that, you take down the perimeter wall, you open up the whole thing. I mean, you're quite right that there is a kind of concentration of public parks in that area. But the reason for that is because they, many of them were royal parks and they have been handed over to the people or to local authorities over the years. So there's a strong precedent of turning what was once a kind of private royal hunting ground, for example, into a public park. And it, it feels very sort of stingy that Queen Elizabeth is the one monarch who, who's not going to get this. Instead, she just gets a, a, this sort of pathetic little sliver running down, a, running down an A road. Surely we can aim a little higher. And I mean, the other funny thing is that she, I think, fairly notoriously didn't love living in Buckingham Palace very much at all and spent as much time as she could at various other royal residences. And so you have to start asking a serious question at this point, like how much benefit is there to Buckingham Palace continuing to be the residence of the head of state if the heads of state generally don't want to be there? <laughs> well, I, I think the thing that a lot of people forget or a lot of people like miss about it is that that big stodgy facade that faces down the mall that's like very much a 20th century building our final section of the show is, is about culture architectural culture taking place in london this week um something that's caught my eye is the henge uh this is designed by stanton williams um great architects uh but i think in a way it's really a, a designed by steve webb of webb yates the engineers um, it's uh, a freestanding henge, Stonehenge, um, a kind of contemporary version of the thousands of stone circles that uh, we see around Britain and Ireland. Um, and structurally, it sort of looks like it shouldn't work. It's these, these big lumps of stone with these skinny little bits of wood between them. And uh, you look at it, and it's, it's in Canary Wharf at the moment, and think, oh, that's going to fall over. Uh, but it doesn't. And the, the reason it doesn't is because there's sort of complex structural forces that uh, seem to sort of defy uh, the laws of physics. Um, you know, uh, potentially it's sort of another kind of pop-up novelty project. Um, it doesn't really serve a practical purpose at all. But I think as a sort of interesting structural experiment, it's rather good. And uh, Webb Yates have been consistently trying to prove the kind of potential of stone as opposed to kind of concrete or reinforced concrete. As a, as a kind of exciting contemporary structural material. Uh, and I feel like this is another uh, sort of step in that. The journey of stone being rehabilitated as a really kind of material of the future, smart material, rather than being seen as this sort of fusty old thing that we shouldn't really be building with anymore. Um, what, what, on, on sort of cultural news, has anything caught your eye, Matt? Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to going to see a new film that's screening as a kind of video installation at Studio Voltaire in Clapham. The film's called Ungentle, and it's by Hugh Lemmy in collaboration with Onyeka Igwe. And it tells the story, or it's a kind of fictionalised ethnography of homosexuality and espionage in the British establishment in the mid-20th century, um, accompanied by sort of, I think from the trailer, Patrick Keeler-ish, long panning sweepy shots of iconic bits of British architecture and landscape accompanied by this sort of um, confessional narrator talking about his place in both class, society and then 
sexuality and indeed geopolitics. So that's high on my list. And I think, yeah, that's the second mention of Hugh Lemmy on the podcast in the last <laughs> month. So he'll be feeling very happy about that. We love you, Hugh. Um, Matt, it's been uh, a great pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for coming to uh, the studio. I uh, hope you can join us again soon. Yeah, I would absolutely love to. Where can our listeners sort of keep track of your 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 musings? Well, sadly, I'm fatally terminally addicted to Twitter.com. So come follow me at Matthew Lloyd R. And if you want to listen to a podcast about architectural history, literature, theory, lots else besides um, about buildings and cities, and you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at about underscore buildings one of the great architectural podcasts it's been going for a while now and you know has a has a huge following and um is always just astonishingly well researched and delivered so you know kudos to you and the team it's a thanks very much big shout out to luke and george (laughs) (laughs) one achievement um thanks everyone for listening thanks matt for joining us see you again soon thank you you've been listening to the lundown a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.